name that is above all names, the name at which every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. And it is his name that we gather in here this morning. Uh, Welcome to Big Woods Bible Church. Uh, We are glad to have you here this morning. Uh, We are studying through the book of Philippians. If you would take your copy of God's Word and open it to the first chapter, we will be looking at verses 27 through 30 this morning uh, as we continue our Real Joy for Real Life series through Philippians. The whole theme of the book of Philippians is around this idea of joy, having joy or rejoicing. This word is mentioned 12 times in four short chapters. And it's a good reminder and and even challenge for us this morning that when we suffer, there's a purpose and a reason. As hard as it may be, God can do something wonderful in our suffering. There is always reason to rejoice with Christ. So the last several weeks we have learned that that in spite of Paul's imprisonments, uh, his pain, his hardship, his hurt, his harm, the attacks that he has faced, the criticisms and, and even slander that he has suffered, he still rejoices. Because in his words, it has served to advance the gospel. So this week we turn to what Paul Uh, wants to hear from from the church that he is writing to at at Philippi, the church that he loves so dearly. And and we'll be reading, like I said, from verses 27 through 30. You can follow along, if not in your lap, on the screen. Starting in verse 27, it says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you That for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. Would you pray with me? God, we, we come before you this morning to rejoice, to rejoice that that Jesus is the name that is above every name. We thank you and, and praise you, God, that, that as we open your word, that you are here with us. We pray and ask that you would guide and direct us this morning. Help us, God, to hear from your word. Help us to hear from you. And God, would you, in a way that only you can do, encourage those of us who need encouraged here this morning. We pray that by your spirit, 
through your word, you would guide and direct us and help us, God, to, to know what it looks like to live for Jesus in all circumstances. We thank you for the work that you're doing in and through us in this community. Help us, God, to be faithful to what you've called us to and help us to be able to say that Jesus is all we have, all we want, and all we need. It's in his name that we pray this morning. Amen. One of my favorite figures from the Reformation is a man named John Wycliffe. Uh, John Wycliffe was born in 1330. That's, that's quite a while ago. Uh, he died in 1384. And in this period of church history, although English was the common language, the only copies of God's word that were available to the people were in Latin. Wycliffe was not okay with this. And, and so he devoted his life to translating the Bible into a language that people could understand. Wycliffe was committed to making the word of God known. The church at this time, however, thought that this was a bad idea. They thought that it was wrong to translate, translate God's word into a common language. And so they set out to kill John Wycliffe. John Wycliffe died before he was able to be killed, but he left a massive legacy. Most of what we read in our English Bibles today is, is a word-for-word translation of what Wycliffe did in the 14th century. If you've ever used a phrase such as, at the 11th hour, the blind leading the blind, at your wit's end, or um, the, by the skin of your teeth, you have John Wycliffe to thank. Those phrases came into common use in the English language through Wycliffe's translation of Scripture. All of this is, is interesting, uh, to me at least. But, but what's even more important to learn from Wycliffe is the, the importance of knowing God and making him known. Wycliffe said on many occasions that I am ready to defend my convictions unto death. Nothing was going to stop him from living for Jesus. And this is the kind of resolve that you and I need. That no matter what, we are going to live for Jesus in his glory. And, and you and I need to know that our circumstances don't determine our identity. But rather, our identity determines how we react to our circumstances. And, and if, as Paul says, our identity is in Jesus, that to live is Christ, then we will live lives for Jesus no matter what we face. And, and I think that's the point that Paul is getting at in our passage here this morning. Paul's main point in, in 27 through 30 is this. No matter the circumstances of your life, live for Jesus. Everything that Paul has written before verse 27 leads up to what he says in verses 27 to 30. And everything after these verses 
are going to point back to the themes that he brings up. Uh, Verses 27 through 30 serve as Paul's transition from his personal update to what the Philippian church needs instructed in. Interestingly enough, what most English translations put into three sentences in verses 27 through 30 is one long, yes, run-on sentence in the Greek. And I think that's because Paul has one message in this entire section. No matter the circumstances of your life, live for Jesus. And, and these verses really serve as a continuation of what Paul says in chapter 1, verse 21. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. What he says in verse 27 is a transition from to me, to live is Christ, to let your life be worthy of the gospel. Paul goes from what he is doing to what he wants to hear that the Philippian church is doing. And the picture that Paul paints is of a citizen of the kingdom of God. If if you're reading along, especially in the, the ESV, when you come to the word worthy, you will see that there's a footnote. You go down to the bottom of the page and it says, only behave as citizens worthy. This is a more literal translation of what we have in verse 27. It says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. Same meaning, same understanding, but, but if, we, if we understand it in terms of, of only behave as citizens worthy, we can see better the picture that Paul is painting. That we are to live as gospel citizens. And, and Paul is saying this to the, the Philippians whether he comes to see them or not. So this means that their manner of life is to be worthy of the gospel. They are to live as gospel citizens, whether or not Paul comes to see them or not, to check in on them. It is their responsibility either way to live worthy of the gospel. That's because gospel citizens live gospel lives. The city of, of Philippi was a, a colony of Rome. So, so the, they had Roman citizenship even though they did not live in Rome. And, and this citizenship was highly valued by them. So, so the Philippians would have understood this phrase, only behave as citizens worthy, in terms of their Roman citizenship. They were to act as Roman citizens and follow the rules of Rome. They were to seek to advance the kingdom of Rome. And they were to do it no matter what, because their citizenship was precious to them. I think, though, that gospel citizens seek the same things. They seek to live according to the gospel. Seek to advance the gospel. And to do it no matter what, Because gospel citizenship is more valuable than anything. So so we might ask, then, what is conduct that is worthy of the gospel? We know in part what it is not, 
because of what happens in, in Galatians 2.14, where Paul confronts Peter for acting hypoc- hypocritically. Paul says, when I saw their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, he called them out. He told them. Their conduct was not promoting the gospel. D.A. Carson helpfully says, conduct worthy of the gospel is above all conduct that promotes the gospel. Peter was not promoting the gospel And so he was rebuked. And and in Philippians, Paul is calling them and us to live lives with the aim of promoting the gospel. And, And this conduct is not based on any circumstances that we will face. Paul says that they should be doing this whether or not he comes to them. And I think that's because gospel promotion is the full-time job of gospel citizens. As, as the story goes, Alexander the Great uh, once met with a man who, who had fled from the scene of battle. He, he retreated, even though the army was still advancing. And, and so Alexander the Great is meeting with this guy, and he asks him what his name is. He replies, it's Alex. Alexander the Great says to him, you either change your name or change your conduct. If we are going to call ourselves Christians, we must live like it. Though the battle rages around us, we never retreat but press on as gospel citizens to promote the gospel message. And that will make our conduct, our manner of life, worthy of the gospel. And and that's what Paul wants to hear from the Philippian church, that they are promoting the gospel. In in verses 12 to 26 of chapter 1, Paul is giving the kind of update that he wants to hear from the Philippian church in verses 27 through 30. He wants to know about their progress and joy in the faith. And he wants to know that their suffering, like his, is serving to advance the gospel. He wants to know if they could say with him, For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Paul wants to hear from this church that he loves that the persecution they are facing is serving to advance the gospel. Paul talks about his suffering a lot. And and how the gospel was advancing even in his suffering. So that he could show them that there is nothing that should deter them from living for Jesus. Jesus. Paul showed them that to live is Christ. That their lives are to be spent in telling others about Jesus, no matter the persecution that they face. Paul modeled it and now expects it. Paul lives for Jesus. And he wants them to live for Jesus in all things as well. Their manner of life is worthy of the gospel 
when the promotion of the gospel is their focus. G. Campbell Morgan says, Life is worthy of the gospel when it suffers to carry that news in order to bring men under the sound of it and under the power of it, that they might be saved by it. That is the focus of a gospel citizen. And Paul has given this command to live as citizens worthy of the gospel, to let their manner of life be worthy of the gospel. And now he wants to tell them and us how to do that. The way that Paul says gospel citizens should promote the gospel is by standing firm in one spirit. So he says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit. Paul's command of living as citizens worthy of the gospel starts with unity. That's, that's a very similar passage to what Paul says in Ephesians 4, where he says, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Again, we have this idea of, of living in a worthy manner. He says, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Standing firm in one spirit is firstly a description of unity. And, and unity in the body of Christ is one of the ways that the gospel goes forward. And, and so Paul says unity is something that you and I should be eager to maintain. Jesus even prays for the unity of the church. John 17 verse 11, he says, keep them in your name which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. And, and he continues in verse 21, and for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. As Jesus is praying for the unity of the church, he does so for the purpose that our unity would display the unity that exists between the Father and the Son so that the world would believe the Father sent the Son. Our unity is a picture that is meant to put on display who God is. It, it, it's not to make us look good and put together. It's to display who God is and what He is like to the world. Our unity shows the world what God is like. But sadly, more often than not, what the church displays to the world is disunity over silly things like the color of carpet 
the color of, of paint. Things that bear no weight in eternity. And, and instead of unity pointing to God and displaying what He's like, disunity points to us. And, and instead of seeing God for who He is, they see us as eager to maintain our disagreements and rightly want nothing to do with God because of our disunity. We need to see unity as highly important to the spread of the gospel in our community. Our unity puts on display who God is. And and we need to accurately picture what He's like. So, so I, would just, I would just ask you, do you have unity with your brothers and sisters here this morning? Unity that can stand firm for the promotion of the gospel in our community? Or are you divided with someone, with, with anyone here? Let me encourage you, if you are, if you are out of unity with, with anyone here, go and make that right. Because if you are both united to Jesus by faith, you can be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace because our union with Jesus brings unity in Jesus that defeats disagreements in lesser things because the spread of the gospel is more important. So, so let, me, let me just say that again. Our unity with Jesus brings unity in Jesus that defeats disagreements in lesser things because the promotion of the gospel is more important. The spread of the gospel is at stake if we are not united. As gospel citizens, we unite over the gospel message and seek to carry it forth. Part of how we do that is unity. Standing together for the sake of the gospel. And that's exactly what Paul wants to hear from the Philippian church. He wants to hear that they are standing firm in one spirit, that they are united in three specific ways. He wants to know that they have one mind, that they strive side by side for the faith of the gospel, and that they are not frightened by their opponents. So, so firstly, that they have one mind. Our unity is birthed in our agreement on the gospel. That we are sinners in need of a savior, And that the only Savior we have is Jesus alone. And there's only one thing that could bring about the kind of unity that Jesus prays for and that Paul wants to hear of. That is lives devoted to the promotion of the gospel. Because the the promotion of the gospel is the preoccupation of gospel citizens, even when there are disagreements about other things, because there is still unity in Jesus. So so this means 
that, that you and I need to have one driving desire. That driving desire of, of a gospel citizen is to see the gospel go forth. To, to see people around us come to know Jesus as Lord so that they too can live lives that are worthy of the gospel. And, and, and Paul paints another picture in, in the second way that he says we are to stand firm in one spirit. He says, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. The image that Paul is, is painting here is, is of Roman soldiers marching forward in lockstep for the advancement of the empire. This is exactly what Paul is encouraging the Philippians to do. To strive side by side in lockstep for the advancement of the gospel. The only other place that, that this phrase, striving side by side, is used in the New Testament is, is later in chapter 4, verse 3 of Philippians, where Paul says to uh, about Judea and Syntyche that they have labored or that they have strived side by side with me together with Clement and the rest of the fellow workers. He's describing that they have done this. That they are striving for the progress of the gospel. And, and I think that what, that what we are supposed to learn from this is, is the great news about unity. And, and that is that it provides others to help us do what we can't do alone. Paul knew he couldn't do it alone. He knew he needed other brothers and sisters in Christ. And, and we can't do it alone either. We need each other. And, and we need other Christians across the world to see the gospel go forward. And that leads to the third way that they are to stand firm in one spirit. Paul says that they are to not be frightened in anything by their opponents. It's an interesting choice of words uh, that Paul uses because this word that he uses for frightened, is not used anywhere else in, in the Bible. It's used a few times in uh, historical uh, writings of that day. And, and when it was used, it was most often used to describe uh, what happens to a horse when it's startled. And, and that, I mean, that's probably a picture that you can conjure up in your brain. Uh, a horse is startled and, and it runs off. It gets scared. Paul is saying, saying to them, to us, that, that we're not to have that kind of reaction when we face persecution. He's referring to, to serious, fearful concern. And, and what Paul is saying is that there may be good human reason to be frightened. Maybe by the possibility of beatings, imprisonment, even execution. Or, or maybe more likely for us, being disowned by family or ridiculed by neighbors who are opponents of the gospel. But even in the midst of those threats, we are not frightened because it is a clear sign of their destruction, but of our salvation and that from God. And Paul uses very specific language again here that connects back to the Old Testament. 
It connects to Exodus 14, 13, which reads, And Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. You hear those connections? The idea of standing firm, of, of not being afraid, and, and of waiting for the salvation of the Lord, which he will work. The Israelites were told to not fear, to stand firm, and that God would save them. And, and so Paul looked back at how God protected his people in the past in order for the Philippians to learn that they can trust him today. Paul's message is that God will save and fight for his people. That's why we are not to be frightened. And so our faith is strengthened in the present by seeing how God has worked in the past. So we have nothing to fear because God is in control. And we have record of that. And we can go back and look at how God has acted in protecting his people and know that he will do the same for us today. And Paul, again, is expecting of them what he modeled to them. Rejoicing in persecution. They are not to be afraid of their persecutors. Because at death, they will depart and be with Christ. Which Paul has already said is gain. And during that, Christ will fully destroy their opponents. And so what Paul says is that we need to see persecution, suffering, as a gift. Paul's suffering has served the good purpose of gospel advancement. And, and he wants to see, he, he wants the Philippians to see their suffering as a gift. In the same way that they see salvation as a gift. And, and it's similar phrasing to what he says in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. This salvation is a gift of God, not a result of work so that no one may, bo may boast. So what, what we are to learn is that God grants both salvation and suffering. Faith is a gift from God, but, but according to Philippians, so is suffering. Paul has suffered greatly. And, and he talked a lot about his suffering in the beginning of this letter. And, and he wants the Philippians to know that they are sharing in his same conflict. And, and I think that's, that's because persecution is the story of the church. Jesus was born into persecution. Jesus died because of persecution. And the persecution of the Philippians continues to this day. And in each instance, it is designed to point to the gospel. One commentator says it this way. Persecution is a parable that puts the death and resurrection of Christ on display again and again 
Persecutors tried to kill the faith of believers like they tried to kill Jesus. But faith rises just like Jesus did. Faith rises just like Jesus did. And so you and I need to know the faith that God gives cannot be killed by death. Death only makes faith sight. The good work that he started, he will bring to completion. And when the opponents see that we are not frightened or deterred by anything that they can throw at us, it is a clear sign of their destruction in our salvation because it shows them that God will ultimately win. We serve a Savior who once dead, now lives. And so we have nothing to fear because Jesus rose from the grave. The resurrection of Jesus gives us hope in our persecution to say with Paul, to live is Christ and to die is gain. And because of that, whatever we face, we live for Jesus. We know that he who began a good work in us will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. We know that to live is Christ and to die is gain. We know that our citizenship is in heaven and we must live our lives in service to our king. And we know that we have nothing to fear in all of this. Because Jesus rose from the grave. No matter the circumstances of your life, Live for Jesus. Our confidence, we, we see a great picture of our confidence from, from Romans chapter 8. It says this, If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. Who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. We can live for Jesus no matter what we face because nothing can separate us from what he purchased for us on the cross. Jesus took the wrath of God that you and I deserve and paid the penalty that you and I couldn't pay. But when he rose again to life, 
He guaranteed anyone united to Him by grace through faith entrance to His kingdom. And so we celebrate that here this morning. We gather as gospel citizens to eat this gospel meal called communion. In in communion, in the Lord's Supper, we see the suffering of Jesus in front of us. We see His body broken. We see His blood poured out for the forgiveness of our sins. And we know that the work that He accomplished was not something that you and I could do. Jesus was the perfect sinless sacrifice. And, and, and we celebrate that here this morning. We, we get to see this in front of us. And, and we partake in remembrance of Him. This meal is a celebration of the unity that we share in Christ. Paul says not to partake of this in an unworthy manner. So, so just with this, this whole idea of, of unity... From, from, from our text in Philippians this morning, if there's a brother or sister that you are separated from, if you are not in unity with here this morning, now, and like, like right now, is the time to go to them and make it right. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, 17, because there is one bread, we who are one body, uh, we who are many are one body, for all of us share that one bread. So, so though we are many here this morning, we are one body. And, and as we share this bread, we share in the fellowship of Christ. So, so it's a, it is a good idea for us, before we partake of this together, to take some time Examine your heart. Search it. Ask God to to search your heart to see if you are in right relationship with Him, but also with others. Because this, this, what we are celebrating this morning, is meant to be a picture of the unity that we share in Christ. And and we want that to be true. We want to have a clear picture to the watching world of the unity that we share in Christ. And we will proclaim that unity until He comes again. When our faith will be made sight. So if, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ here this morning, we invite you to partake. And and to proclaim the unity that we share as gospel citizens. If you have not submitted to Christ as Lord, if if you are not a believer in Jesus Christ here this morning, I I would just ask that 
that you would refrain from partaking as you would be eating and drinking God's judgment on yourself. But know as well that today is the day of salvation. And that if you place your faith in Jesus, you will be united to the one who took that judgment for you. So we are, we are going to partake of this together. May it display our unity, that we are one in Christ. The elders are going to come, they're going to serve you the bread first. We will pray for the bread and the cup. We will partake of the bread together. And then you will be served the cup and we will partake of that together as well. So take some time now as the elders prepare to examine your hearts.